This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, our coverage returns to presidential elections in Central America. Voters in both El Salvador and Costa Rica go to the polls this weekend. We'll have a preview. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. The Mexican government is putting its stamp of approval on the vigilantes fighting against drug cartels. Vigilante leaders came to an agreement with the Mexican government this week. The vigilantes can become part of the Rural Defense Corps, a government-sanctioned force. In order to become part of the Rural Defense Corps, vigilante force members must pass the same test as Mexican law enforcement. Selene Vasquez, the president of the Michoacan Congressional Justice Commission, talks about the new relationship between the two groups. They're arriving a little bit late with dire consequences for society. I say this because in every family of Tierra Caliente, from the Sierra to the coast, we found people kidnapped, dead, disappeared, a girl who was raped, a hurt father, and a crippled economy. This development in government vigilante relations comes as Mexican authorities arrested Dionisio Loya Plancarte, also known as El Tío. Loya Plancarte is one of the top leaders of the Knights Templar, the drug cartel terrorizing the state of Michoacán and other parts of central Mexico. Panamanian authorities released 32 crew members of a North Korean cargo ship, a ship that attempted to smuggle weapons through the Panama Canal six months ago. All 32 crew members deny having knowledge of the ship's hidden cargo. Authorities found fighter jets and missile systems hidden in the cargo ship. The ship's captain and two other crew members are still detained. Authorities say they had instructions for what to do if the ship's illegal cargo was found. They face up to 12 years in prison for arms smuggling. Authorities in the United States have arrested Ecuadorian Edgar Baca at the request of Interpol. Baca is a former police chief, and he is accused of human rights abuses. He will be extradited to Ecuador. After President Rafael Correa came into power in 2007, Ecuador began investigating human rights abuses. During these investigations, Baca evaded arrest by escaping to the United States. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Voters in El Salvador will cast ballots for a new president this weekend. We asked Jeff Thale of the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, for his assessment of the race. Here are excerpts from our conversation. We are talking about the Salvadoran elections for this weekend. Three candidates, and it looks like uh, if polling holds, no one will win in the first round. Well, that's an interesting question. I just wrote something yesterday saying exactly that, that uh, the candidate of the FMLN, Salvador Sanchez Sorrent, had a lead, but probably not 50%. In the last 24, 36 hours, I've heard a number of Salvadoran analysts saying that maybe he's going to hit that 50% mark. So we'll have to see on Sunday. It'll be close. He is the vice president. 
He's currently the vice president. Uh, he is one of the founding members and one of the original comandantes of the FMLN. Uh, he represents, some people would call him the old guard uh, of the FMLN, although within what's thought of as the old guard, the people who helped found the party, you know, Sanchez Seren was originally an elementary school teacher, became a teacher's union activist, and from that moved into what eventually became the guerrillas. Um, so of that generation of people who are still in the FMLN and who are still who are thought of as the old guard, he's probably one of the more flexible. But interesting that someone who is has that record, a comandante, a general during the war, now vice president, 22 years after the peace accords, someone who was a, a guerrilla out in the mountains is a potential to be the president. It, it, it's an amazing change. I mean, I've been saying it's an amazing change that the FMLN as a party, a party that was once armed rebels fighting the government, is today a legal political party with the largest plurality in the National Assembly and serious candidates for president. I think it's even more amazing that their candidate is himself one of the former senior guerrilla leaders. And I think that represents both a change in him and in the FMLN on the one side and in Salvadoran society on the other. Yeah. For those who don't track El Salvador, FMLN is the current party in power, although some would say that President Funes is more of a moderate, not a party regular. Right. So the party has had several debate, internal primaries and debates about who their candidate ought to be over the years. Um, several times they have come close to nominating somebody who did not represent the old guard. Um, every time they sort of backed away, they nominated somebody from the old guard and they lost. In the last election, they they selected Mauricio Funes, who was a journalist who had been sympathetic to them but not a party member and had joined the party basically as part of a deal to get himself nominated and elected. Sanchez is the leader in the polls. Right. Um, likely, who will he face in a runoff if there's a so the Right. So the other two candidates, the first is Norman Quijano. He's the mayor of San Salvador, which is the capital and the largest city, traditionally the launching place for presidential candidates. Uh, he represents the conservative Arena Party, which is the sort of pro-business elite. If there's a second round, he will be the candidate. And most people may know that Arena ran El Salvador almost uninterrupted for a very long period of time. Right. So the you know the the traditional business elite, often in alliance with the military, has dominated El Salvador since the 1930s. <clears throat> Arena was formed in the 1990s when it first ran for office. In 1980, early 1989, its candidate, Freddie Cristiani, was elected, and ARENA presidents have been elected steadily from 1989 to 2009 when the FMLN candidate, Funes, was elected for the first time. Shall we bring up even more of the history of ARENA that, that they are connected to? Sure. The death that, squads and right. other things during the war. So the founder of ARENA, uh, ARENA, this is an image. Interest, I was going to say this is an image ARENA tries to live down, but some parts of the party do not. Arena's anthem still says, El Salvador will be the tombs of the Reds, will be the tomb of the Reds. And um, El Salvador's, the, the Arena Party's original founder, Roberto Dalbison, um widely believed, actually at this point in history we can say, was the organizer of sort of a death squad strategy uh, starting in 1977, 78, 
and running through the mid-80s, mid to late-80s in El Salvador. And some people speculate and wonder whether he had connections to the assassination of Archbishop of, Romero. Right, right. I, I Yes, I... I wouldn't want to defame anyone, but I believe that Dalbison was in the group that made the decision to have Archbishop Romero assassinated. We've talked in this program before about uh, President Tony Saka, who's also running third-party Ghana. Doesn't look like they're going to win. No, uh, it's interesting. Saka was the Arena Party, not only candidate, but president from 2004 to 2009, He represented a sort of different sector of the business community that was uh, often in conflict with what you might describe as the more traditional part of the elite. Uh, He was a radio sportscaster. He owned a network of radio stations. He had connections with kind of younger and more dynamic, although not less conservative, business people. Um, When his chosen successor lost to the FMLN candidate, he was blamed inside the party. He and his group were sort of thrown out of the party. He formed Ghana as a third force, center-right force, and I think people in Arena have seen it as a um, you know a divisive force that's ruptured the unity of the right. Some have argued that Ghana will keep Arena from yes. regaining the presidency. Yes, I think that's probably right. Uh, without that division. With all of the right united, I, their their chances would certainly be stronger, yes. We've talked a lot about candidates and personalities here. Any themes, any policies that are driving the electorate in this election? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, obviously, for El Salvador in general, the economy is the huge issue for everyone. I mean, growth has been 2% maybe in the last couple of years. Um, Salvadorans continue, especially young Salvadorans, continue to emigrate as soon as they can, often illegally by paying coyotes to bring them to the United States. Uh, So that's the economy. And then on the other side, crime and violence. Uh, Interestingly, the candidates haven't really, the campaign has been less sharply focused on issues and more on general sort of left of center, right of center kind of images. Although I think recently the whole question of crime and gang violence in particular has has played a bigger role. Um, this past week, actually, Quijano, the arena candidate, said he would do whatever it takes and he would militarize security to solve the problem of crime and violence. And he also said that the um, gang truce, which was facilitated by the current government and which has been fairly controversial, but has clearly brought down homicide rates significantly. He said the gang truce would be over the day he was inaugurated president. So that's been a sharper focus in the last week or so. Are we going back to the Monoduro policies if that happens? Well, that's what it sounds like. Uh, I mean, that would be really troubling because I think all of the evidence is that Monoduro policies, sort of iron fist anti-gang policies that involve making it a crime to be a member of a gang, uh, the proof that you're a member of a gang is you're wearing baggy pants and you've got tattoos, all that kind of stuff. Um, All of the evidence is that that's counterproductive and that in the case of El Salvador, which implemented what they called mano dura and then super mano dura in 2002 to 2007, 2008, all the evidence is that that made gangs more organized, more concentrated, harder to identify and arrest, um, and more likely to commit serious crimes. You've done significant work in this area, crime, violence, police, gangs in El Salvador for many years. And so can you explain to us how, when you use the iron fist, it actually has the counterproductive 
Sure, and I should say, you know, the evidence is not just of this in El Salvador. I mean, it's true in the United States as well. That what happens, uh, you do two things. One is kids join gangs, young people join gangs, partly because of economic circumstances, but in large measure out of seeking a sense of identity. And police attacks on gangs tend to reinforce the gang's identity as a group united against outsiders and um, united by what they have in common. So it strengthens the internal bonds in the gang itself and in its members. That's one. The second and really the bigger one is that imprisoning gang members gives them a lot more time to talk with each other and to organize themselves internally. And everywhere in El Salvador and in Honduras and in Los Angeles, gangs, gangs on the street are heavily influenced, if not controlled, by gang leaders in prison. And, and so the prisons became more or less a school for right. the gangs. That's absolutely right. They be, so in Salvador in 2002, 2003, all of the gangs, local gangs that called themselves MS-13 or 18th Street, had loose ties to each other. When the leaders of all those cliques were sitting in the same two or three prisons, they spent all their time talking with each other, tightening their bonds, tightening their structure, and reinforcing their leadership over the guys out on the street. Have we heard Sanchez talk about the gang issue? Will he keep the truce? Um, he has not talked much about the gang issue. He has talked about their focus on violence prevention and on rehabilitation. It's pretty clear they have advisors who have done a lot of work on youth violence prevention and on rehabilitation issues. My guess is that they will try to preserve the truce, although he hasn't said so. I think they'll try and renegotiate its terms, and I think there are a lot of people who think that there are questions, there are things that need to be looked at again. But it's hard to argue that you should end the truce, given that there used to be 12 or 13 homicides a day in El Salvador, and now there are seven. And that's still way too high, and it's still scary, but that's a big difference. What are we missing that we haven't discussed about these elections for this weekend? Well, the big question, or one of the big questions, of course, has been El Salvador's relationship with the United States. So historically, the U.S. supported the ARENA government, the right, generally speaking, and, of course, and opposed the FMLN. And we invested $6 billion over 12 years supporting the government in fighting the FMLN. Um, we, uh, that didn't happen during the last election, though. No, it? so that's the, that's the thing that's significant. So in the 1980s, we had this long history of opposing the FMLN. Um, when they became a legal political party, we were committed to supporting their legalization and integration. But the United States was not eager to see them win elections or run the country. Mostly 1994, 1999, U.S. preferences were quietly, not publicly expressed. But in, 19, in 2004 especially, the United States under the Bush administration, uh, the second Bush administration, was very vocal, as were a number of members of Congress, about their, the, the problems that it would create for U.S. Salvadoran relations if the FMLN won those elections. And that was seen as, and was pretty flank, frankly, interference in the internal political decisions of people in El Salvador. In 2009, under the Obama administration, um, and partly out of a desire to shift our relations with Latin America in general and to suggest that we could live with governments on the left, the, the Obama administration took a neutral stand in the elections. When Funes won, Hillary Clinton went down to his inauguration. And at least initially, we, um, uh, you know, had reasonably warm relations with them. Thank you so much. 
Jeff Bale of the Washington office on Latin America. Wola, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Voters in Costa Rica are also making decisions about a new president this weekend. We reached out to Francisco Robles for his analysis. Robles is a professor at the Universidad de Costa Rica and the Universidad Nacional de Costa Rica. We spoke to him in San Jose, Costa Rica, via Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Well, there is a possibility that a leftist party can at least uh, go to a second round with the official party Liberación Nacional. And according to some polls, they are disputing or they are fighting for the the for for winning these elections. So when we talk about the parties that are likely to do well, the you mentioned the PLN, the National Liberation Party, their candidate, Johnny Araya, is the mayor, former mayor of San Jose. And then on the left, we're talking about the broad front, the Frente Amplio with Jose Maria Vialta, and, and also the Citizens Action Party. No, the, the Luis Guillermo Solis from the Citizens Action Party, which has been a strong third party in, in Costa Rica for a while. Yes, uh, in the case of uh, Partido Acción Ciudadana and Luis Guillermo Solis, this party uh, was born in 2002 after, and we can call in 2002 the end of bipartisan in Costa Rica with the emergence of a Partido Acción Ciudadana. And they have been in, in the, or they, they have been the, the, the opposition way to vote because uh, during like 30 years in Costa Rica, the majority of the Costa Ricans vote just for two parties, uh, Partido Unidad Social Cristiana, Social Democracy Party, and Partido Liberación Nacional, the Liberation Party that it used to be a social democrat uh, party. Nowadays, we have at least five um, candidates running for the elections. As you said before, we have Johnny Anaya, the former mayor of, of the capital of San Jose. He was mayor of San Jose during 22 years. Partido Acción Ciudadana, Frente Amplio, as you said before. And also we have in the center right, uh, again, uh, Partido Unidad Social Cristiana uh, with uh, the former president of our social security system, Rodolfo Pisa. And nowadays it's interesting because we are kind of having our our uh, little Tea Party here represented by uh, Otto Guevara Good, uh, who is a former student of Harvard University, who is now, who used to be a libertarian politician, but nowadays is a conservative. And if you can hear some speeches of him. He sounds very uh, similar than Sarah, Sarah Palin in the States. He runs, uh, a, he's the head of the party, the Liberation Movement Party. And, and I guess from that name, you get a bit of the libertarian idea um, of, of that right-wing party. But there are 13 parties contesting this particular election, and someone has to get 40% of the vote or there's going to be a runoff. So... Um, is it possible one of these left-wing parties, the 
broad front seems to be doing very well in the polls, or the Citizens Action Party may come in in the second place? Well, there, there are so many polls nowadays. It's interesting because for the first time in the history of Costa Rica, La Nación, the biggest newspaper, uh, the most influential newspaper in the country that is ruled by one of the most powerful economic groups here, it didn't want to uh, to publish a poll on last Wednesday, 29 or something like that, because according to they, that poll can influence the vote uh, some days before the elections. So, uh, and and the same day, the University of Costa Rica published uh, uh, another poll that says that uh, Johnny Araya will have something around 17%, uh, Jose Maria Villalta around 14%, it will be Guillermo Solis around 11%, and uh, the Movimiento Libertario will have around 7, 7%. But the majority of the people who are counting now in the polls are the people who has at this time, that doesn't have um, a candidate. So how many undecided are, is showing in that particular poll? What is the percentage of the undecided? Uh, the, the percentage, uh, 33% of, of undecided. So that's a significant undecided vote. Where I guess we're going to find out where they go um, this past, this next weekend. I'm wondering, though, what are the, the are there anything... Any topics, any themes, any um, policies that are driving people to make decisions in Costa Rica besides this theme of anti-corruption? Corruption has been a problem for the traditional parties, for the PUSC, the Social Christian Party, for even for the ruling party, the National Liberation Party has had some uncommon um, scandals re- regarding corruption. Yeah, it's interesting because nowadays corruption is not a topic. The topic nowadays in the media and in, in public conversation, or the people are talking not about the corruption. The people about are talking about communism, a white communism, because uh, a right uh, win entrepreneurs and businessmen uh, started a fear campaign like two weeks ago, saying that Jose Maria Villalta will be another Chavez and they will take uh, all the jobs and they will spell all the transnational companies. So nowadays that uh, fear campaigns work a little bit. So a lot of people who uh, two weeks ago uh, were planning to vote for Frente Amplio nowadays are a little bit confusing because all these fear campaign. Um, and in every debate, for instance, uh, Jose Maria Villalta received the, 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 the question about, are you communist, Jose Maria Villalta, or aren't you? So that's part of the discussion. That's the level of discussion that we are having now in Costa Rica. Costa Rica has a long history of being a leader in democracy in Central America. And and this sort of fear campaign sounds more like something from one of your neighbors, like Honduras. Uh, this was certainly something that worked very well in the Honduran elections recently. Yeah, and it worked also. Uh, this fear campaign has been used not just in Costa Rica when the when Mauricio Funes in El Salvador uh, ran for 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 president. The same campaign was used in Peru with Olante Ollanta Humala. All around Latin America, this fear campaign has been used. So I think is the the way that the, the big economic business group in Latin America see democracy. If they are losing their privilege, so they try to they try to create these anti-communism campaigns. I'm glad you mentioned the history of Costa Rica. Some of our listeners may not know that for 
more than 20 years after the Costa Rican Revolution in the 1940s that the Communist Party was outlawed and illegal in in your country. And so there continues to be this anti-communist feeling. So the election seems then to be about business, is what you're telling us, economics, the economy. Uh, I, I am not sure if there is something that was related with the economy. I think it's more about uh, the people doesn't want to to elect any more people from from liberation from liberation party because uh, the the economy hasn't been in the in the debates or or in the in the, in the political campaign. Well, thank you, Francisco Robles, <laughs> joining us today from San Jose, Costa Rica, via Skype. He is a professor at the Universidad de Costa Rica and Universidad Nacional de Costa Rica. Thank you so much for joining us again. Okay, thank you, Professor uh, Rogel, for having me in your program. This week, we add a voice to our Latin American Perspectives commentary, and the topic covers abortion and justice in Mexico and Central America. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Macarena Saiz of the Washington College of Law at American University. Adriana is from an indigenous community in Mexico. She's poor. Her husband left. She has two kids. In 2006, she was living with another man and pregnant. When Adriana had a miscarriage, she and her partner buried the fetus. When her father realized what had happened, he accused her of having an abortion and took her to the community to be stoned. They spit on her, threw stones at her, and accused her of having sexual relations outside marriage. Then, the father took her and her partner to the prosecutor's office where they were charged with murder. The man was freed soon after. Adriana remained in jail and was sentenced to 32 years in prison. The evidence against her? The lungs of the fetus were immersed in water and floated. According to the prosecutor's office and all the criminal justice system that tried Adriana, this proved that the fetus was born alive. This proved that she was guilty. It didn't matter that she claimed her innocence that she spoke no Spanish and no translator was ever provided. It didn't matter that the evidence was minimal and unscientific, to say the least. Adriana was just a woman. Well, not really. She was a poor, indigenous woman. A week ago, the Supreme Court of Mexico ordered the immediate release of Adriana due to process violations. Seven years in prison for a miscarriage. In the meantime, two children were raised without parents. This is an unfortunate story. Sadly, it's not the only one. In Mexico, women's rights movements claim that today there are 157 women imprisoned for murder using similar evidence than in Adriana's case. In El Salvador, women's organizations claim that around 6,000 women are imprisoned for charges on abortion. Many of these women get to hospitals with what can be a miscarriage or an induced abortion and denounced to the police by hospital personnel. No presumption of innocence here. No reasonable doubt that it could have been a miscarriage. These women are treated as criminals before they even explain their situation. Many times they are prejudged by healthcare personnel condemning their patients without due process. The punishments go from denouncing them to the police, breaking any possible doctor-patient privilege, chaining them to their beds, treating them without or little anesthesia so they can suffer for what they allegedly did. Some people may be tempted to think that the case of Adriana was a real induced abortion case. Does it matter? Regardless of our opinions on abortion, criminal justice systems have a duty to protect the rights of the accused and ensure that only if there is enough evidence a person can be declared guilty. 
abortion in Latin America, just as in the U.S., is a contested issue. It divides people. The discussion about the legitimacy of criminalizing abortion, however, should not get in the way of criminal justice systems acting with fairness for a rich man or a poor indigenous woman. It should not get in the way of protecting human rights. Innocent or guilty, a woman should have access to an interpreter, to an attorney and to fair treatment, to health care without the risk of being prosecuted. A woman should have access to pain medications when being treated for post-abortion care. No one should be chained to a hospital bed while being treated. Finally, there is something deeply wrong when poor women are guilty all the time. The opinions expressed by Macarena Saiz are her own and are not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to her Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud. Or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, social producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>